Everyone loves liberty. Our rights come from God, not the government. So why are you letting other people tell you what's best for your health care? Exercise your freedom with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a community of people who voluntarily share one another's medical costs. Liberty HealthShare is founded on the idea that most people truly want to help one another. Healthcare sharing allows members to do just that as a true community that supports one another in times of need. Liberty believes people should make decisions for themselves and their families. Members are able to take back the freedom to make their own decisions about their health care. Freedom from guilt or doubt about how your money is used. You have the freedom to direct your health care, not to be dictated to by bureaucrats. Stop letting others tell you what to do and join a community of like-minded people. Exercise your freedom. Join Liberty HealthShare and take back the control of your health care while helping those around you. Call Liberty at 855-58-LIBERTY. Again, that's 855-58-L-I-B-E-R-T-Y for more information. Or you can check them out at libertyhealthshare.org. Again, that's libertyhealthshare.org. You're listening to the Spark Radio Network, internet radio like you've never heard before. Innovation, creativity, and imagination are all said to begin with a spark. So fasten your seatbelt and take the ride of your life and listen for the spark. You are listening to KLRN Radio, where liberty and reason still reign. around us is an amazing place filled with beauty and with science. But let's face it, sometimes the science can be so confusing that it takes a PhD to understand it. Well, you're in luck. I just happen to have a PhD. Come and take a seat. Perhaps I can explain the world around us in a way we all can understand. Welcome to Conversations in Science. I'm Dr. Judy L. Moore. Call me Doc. Hi, guys, and welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Conversations in Science. I am Dr. Judy L. Moore, and no, I'm not a medical doctor. My PhD was in astronomy. Hey, not a problem. But for those of you who are new to the show, the way it works is I do the best I can to explain to you science in a way that we all can understand, but I have a little help. Jesse, where are you? What's up, Doc? Hey, Jess. Jesse Sanders is on the line to make sure that I don't go too much into too techno don't go too much into the techno babble. So, Jess, guess what? What Doc? What's up? What's up? We're not alone today. Cool. Yeah, well, it's definitely cool. I thought I would reach out to some of the other people that I happen to actually know and thought well, maybe they can talk about their areas of science instead. I'm not a medical doctor, and well, guess what? We happen to have somebody who, well, they're not a medical doctor necessarily, but they still know a lot about medicine. Cool, cool, I cool. want to welcome today, I want to welcome Dr. Anne Lipton to the show, who is a neurologist and an expert in dementia and Alzheimer's. Welcome. Thank you, Judy. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> Um, and thanks, Jesse. It's nice to be here. It's my pleasure to be here. And I actually am a medical doctor and I have a PhD in physiology as well. Of oh, course, cool. so we have everything oh. covered today. Fantastic. <laughs> cool. Covering so all the bases. You today are here to talk to us about dem- uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. Do you want to give us a little bit of your background so we know who you are and where you're coming from? Sure. Well, I'm a neurologist. As I said, I have an MD, so a doctor in medicine. I've done a neurology residency, and I also did a fellowship in um, dementia uh, and uh, neurobehavior, uh, which covers some other aspects of the brain. Uh, In addition, um, I have my PhD, as I mentioned, in physiology, and it is in um, neurophysiology. And um, I am a specialist in dementia, uh, and I've worked with many patients and families who are dealing with dementia. And I currently am an advisor for CareLoop, which is a healthcare technology portal company. I also speak and write on dementia. Cool. Cool. Okay, so before we get too involved and too carried away, you are going to have to explain to everybody exactly what is dementia, because it's not just being forgetful, is it? Well, thanks, Doc. Yeah, that's a great question to start with, and it kind of lays the foundation what we're going to talk about today. So dementia is 
what doctors would refer to as a neurodegenerative disease or progressive brain illness. And when we say progressive in medicine, we're usually referring to a disease that gets progressively worse. So it's an illness that's affecting the brain that gets progressively worse over time. And a dementia might be a primary dementia. You might think of something like Alzheimer's disease, um, which that basically begins in the brain, or a dementia might be secondary to another disease, could be another neurological disease like multiple sclerosis, and it would be a dementia secondary to that. Now, not everybody that has multiple sclerosis will get dementia, but some do. And then it could also be secondary to another medical disease, which isn't necessarily neurological, but something like, say, HIV AIDS, somebody who has AIDS could have an AIDS-related dementia. So, um, you know, there's many different types of dementia. It's a very broad term, but if you want to just define it broadly, we would say a progressive brain illness, as I mentioned, would be kind of the easiest thumbnail uh, definition of the word. Okay, so what would be the biggest symptom if you if you were talking about dementia? What is the the one thing that most people should correctly associate with dementia, but not necessarily do? So. That's a, that's a great question because there's a lot of misconceptions about the symptoms of a dementia. And most people think of memory, which makes sense because Alzheimer's disease is the most common dementia and memory is the first and worst symptom of Alzheimer's disease. However, dementia is a complex disease. As I mentioned, it's a brain illness. So really, there are many different forms of dementia, and they begin in different ways. Uh, so when you ask what are the symptoms of dementia, we would think about cognition and behavior. So cognition is our mental processing, things like memory, but it can also be language, attention, what we call executive functioning, which is those are like all our higher order uh, mental activities, things like organization, judgment, planning, abstract reasoning. Uh, it could involve visual, spatial um, types of um, uh, perceptions and motor, visual and motor skills. Uh, not motor skills um, alone usually, but um, in concert with cognitive processes and also behavior. So the two major things you can think about are cognitive symptoms, so some sort of mental processing difficulties or behavioral symptoms. Now we all in everyday life can have some cognitive difficulties. So the line that we make about these types of symptoms are their cognitive or behavioral symptoms that um, are significant enough to affect our daily functioning. And as I mentioned, it's a progressive illness. So it would be these types of symptoms, cognitive or behavioral symptoms that um, impact our daily functioning, prevent us from doing our normal daily tasks, whatever are normal for us as a person, and that get worse over time. So that's really what you're looking for. And depending on the dementia, the initial symptoms may be different for an individual or for the type of dementia that they have. Wait a minute, Dr. Okay. Lipton. Is it yep. a problem Jessica. that I can never remember where I put my car keys? So... Probably not. Um, usually when we think about like misplacing the car keys, uh, for most people, that's often not even um, a memory problem per se, but it goes back to something even more basic, which is attention. So if you don't pay attention to where you put your keys um, and then you put them down, and especially if you put something on top of them that hides them, you know, and then you may think, well, I don't remember where you put them. But if you didn't pay attention to where you put them in the first place, it's not a matter of a memory problem, but one of attentional of where you actually put them down, you didn't notice. And that happens a lot to people because they might put their keys down in different places. So one handy tip that you can do to make your life easier is to always put your keys in the same place. Now, if somebody has put their keys in the same place and they have a little basket or dish and they've done that for, you know, all their life or, you know, for decades, and then suddenly they can't remember where they put their keys and they don't remember 
that specific place where they always put their keys, that would be more troubling because that would be something that um, was, you know, a very um, overlearned uh, type of uh, um, information um, that should have um, been set down in their what we call remote or long-term memory. So that would be more concerning. So it's not so much about forgetting where you parked your car that's as much of a concern as it is if you forget about what type of car you have. Got it. Then I uh, guess I'm in the see, clear. My, my keys end up in any one of 15 different spots. Yeah. Wait, no, but see, here's as, the problem. as I mentioned, if Forgetting you the type use of car organization, you can help your memory and your, you know, you can help with attention and memory. And that's just uh, a handy tip in everyday life that we can all use to, because stress and frustration are, are bad for the brain. And so it's a good idea to minimize your daily stress and frustration if you can, because that helps protect your brain. Okay, so in that case, I need to remind myself to uh, never drive my husband's car, because whenever I'm driving my husband's (laughs) car, I can never remember that it was my husband's car I was driving when I get to the grocery store. I'm like, which car was I driving? (laughs) I can't remember. And then maybe I need to hide my keys from my husband, because the number of times I put my keys down, and he's the one that's moved them. He's taking them away. So maybe that's what I need to do. Um, Yeah, you have to teach them too. (laughs) (laughs) There's a saying that I know my mother always said all the time, you know, I must be getting senile in my old age. Is that, is being senile actually being, having dementia or is that just us just being weird? So that the word senile in its most technical form, it actually means old. So to be senile is to be old. Senility is a synonym for old age. But in common or colloquial use, it ha- people have um, often used it to mean something equivalent to dementia or memory loss. But that technically, that's not the true meaning of the word. And I actually would advise against using the word in that way. And here's why is because not all people who are old or senile have dementia and not all people who have dementia are old or quote unquote senile. So, so I would advise against using the term as a synonym for dementia because really it means old age. And nowadays because of that colloquial meaning of the word, uh, we tend not to use the word senile as much because it does have kind of a pejorative sense to it. So it's it's kinder to, you know, refer to people as being geriatric or um, if you want in in common parlance to say that, um, you know, there someone is mature or seasoned uh, of a certain age, something like that. Um, the other thing about. Whoa, Dr. Lipton, saying, I yeah. got it, but in big word sure. pejorative. What? Time out. <laughs> Oh, pejorative, a negative, a negative connotation. Thanks, Dr. Lipton. Sure, sure, no problem. Um, And, you know, sometimes nowadays people, instead of um, saying that if if they forget something, um, people used to say that they were quote unquote senile. I think nowadays sometimes people say they're having a senior moment is sometimes the word they use, which I think is, you know, again, it's a colloquial term. So whether or not it has to do with their age or again, did they actually pay attention to whatever the information was? Um, Certainly our memory can change over time. um, And sometimes our, you know, recent memory and, and different aspects of memory as we age can get worse. But the good news is some aspects of our memory and reasoning actually improve with age. Um, Things, as I was mentioning, executive functioning, which is our higher order thinking. So our ability to abstract, uh, to reason abstractly and to look at kind of the big picture, um, those sorts of things uh, can actually improve with age because of our experience. Okay, so so obviously dementia is not an old person thing. I mean, that is clearly the most misunderstood thing that people have. So is that age, everybody is, it, age is a huge goals. risk factor for developing dementia. However, um, simply aging does not mean that one will develop age, uh, will develop dementia. So there are super agers who are in very good physical and mental health. And there's also 
people who have normal aging who don't have dementia. So uh, dementia is not a part of normal aging. Uh, And there are young people who can develop dementia. When I say young, I mean under the age of 65. So some people have what we call um, early onset dementia before the age of 65, and uh, they may develop dementia. And sometimes it's related to genetic factors. It may be related to genetic factors that currently in modern medicine we don't understand. Um, but it does tend to be more genetic under the age of 65 than over the age of 65. That said, there are some people who who develop um, Alzheimer's disease before the age of 65, and we're not always sure, or other types of dementia before the um, age of 65, and we're not sure of the genetic factors. But but there may be some genetic factors we're not aware. Uh, but but people under 65 can develop dementia, and uh, people over 65 aren't necessarily going to develop dementia. However, the risk of dementia does increase with age. Okay. So, you know, you've mentioned that there's a, a genetic possibly with some factors associated with dementia. What conditions, I mean, we've mentioned Alzheimer's briefly, and I know Alzheimer's is not the same thing as dementia, that there is other things. Are there other conditions out there? where dementia is a component, but they are a genetic um, contribution that we know that there's this genetic, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that so, question well, made sense. <laughs> made sense in my head. <laughs> kind of, there are almost two questions in your question. So the, the first point I would make is all Alzheimer's disease is dementia, but not all dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so dementia is an umbrella term, as I mentioned, a progressive brain illness. Well, that's kind of like saying someone has heart disease. Well, if you your doctor told you you had heart disease, your next question would probably be what type of heart disease? So it's the same thing with the brain. If we say, well, somebody has a worsening brain disease, well, what what exactly do you mean and what's a specific type? So Alzheimer's is one type of dementia. It's often um, heralded as the most common form of dementia. Uh, And then there's other types of dementia that may have to do with, you mentioned genetics, but also environmental factors. So after Alzheimer's, we often think about um, vascular dementia, and that actually is not so much genetic related as probably more environmentally related as we think of things like heart attacks and strokes. And the risk factors for heart attacks and strokes are the same risk factors for vascular dementia. So vascular dementia is a brain illness related to changes in the blood vessels in the brain. um, And there's damage to the brain and this damage ultimately Um, affects behavior and cognition, things like attention and memory. And it can definitely affect, um, in terms of behavior, it can affect things like mood. So there's Alzheimer's, there's vascular, and then one of the most common forms of dementia is actually mixed. And when I say mixed dementia, I don't mean a mashup of any old thing. I mean something very specific as a neurologist when I say mixed dementia. I mean a combination of Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. And that actually, if you look at community studies, um, there's uh, one major study that was done in Chicago, and that was actually more common than Alzheimer's to have this mixed dementia, this combination of Alzheimer's and vascular dementia was more common than just even Alzheimer's alone. Uh, And so when people are concerned, like you mentioned genetics, well, we we can't at this stage um, do very much about genetics. Now, science is developing gene editing, so there may be some hope for the future that we can do more in terms of uh, genetic factors for dementia. But what we can do is modify some environmental factors. So the risk factors for vascular dementia and for mixed dementia, at least the vascular component, and even Um, there's some risk factors associated with those that are also um, modifiable uh, that can help us prevent Alzheimer's disease. And so what I'm trying to say here is what's good for the heart is good for the brain. All of those things that help you have good, healthy blood vessels and heart will help the blood vessels in your brain. And in fact, the blood vessels in your brain may be even more sensitive. So things like exercise, a heart-healthy diet, not smoking, um, controlling Uh, vascular diseases like uh, heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, 
all of these things um, may help to prevent or postpone vascular dementia, mixed dementia, and some studies even show um, Alzheimer's. Uh, postponing um, or preventing all the development of Alzheimer's disease. So all of those are seem to be modifiable. And then there are many other different types of dementia too that um, I can go on to discuss. If you are, you interested in hearing about some of the others? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it, is there? I mean, what about things like Parkinson's stuff like that? Does okay. that? Yeah, have that's actually the next one moment? I was going to talk about. So um, it used to be thought. Uh, in some circles, that dementia was uncommon with Parkinson's disease. Uh, but we actually know there is an association of Parkinson's disease with dementia. And uh, particularly as people uh, live longer with Parkinson's disease and, a- and age, um, there is a dementia associated with Parkinson's disease. And this is different uh, than the dementia we tend to see with Alzheimer's disease. There may be more behavioral, more mood uh, factors. It tends to be more visual spatial type of impairment uh, than we tend to see, at least uh, in the early stages, they're more distinct. As dementias progress, they become uh, more similar. Uh, there's more overlap to different types of dementia as they progress, but at least in the initial stages, uh, they tend to be a little different. And then there's a type of dementia that's relatively common that seems to have some aspects of Parkinson's disease and some of Alzheimer's disease. And this dementia is called dementia with Lewy bodies, and it's spelled L-E-W-Y. And dementia with Lewy bodies is named after something that's seen under the microscope in the brain, these particular what are called inclusions, um, but um, they're collections, abnormal collections of a particular type of protein. This dementia with Lewy bodies is similar to Parkinson's disease in that it has some similar motor features to Parkinson's disease. It usually doesn't have the rest tremor that we see in Parkinson's disease, but it can have the rigidity, uh, the slow gait, uh, the postural instability or the tendency to fall backwards. Uh, And then the other thing which is quite problematic in dementia with Lewy bodies is although the motor symptoms are not as bad as Parkinson's disease, patients with dementia with Lewy bodies tend not to respond to the anti-Parkinsonian medicines as well as someone with Parkinson's disease. It's actually part of the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease that a person um, would respond to the medications. That's actually part of the criteria in terms of making the diagnosis. So unfortunately, patients with dementia with Lewy bodies have some of the similar symptoms of Parkinson's disease early on. They don't tend to be as severe, but they tend to progress um, at a greater rate, uh, say over years rather than over decades, as is the case in Parkinson's disease, um, partly because they're not amenable to the treatment. They don't respond to the medications that we would normally use for someone with Parkinson's disease. Often we try these medications, but unfortunately they don't work as well. And then with the memory, the memory of a patient with dementia with Lewy bodies, early on, they the memory does not tend to be as bad as someone with Alzheimer's disease. And again, a similar pattern is seen as to Parkinson's disease dementia in terms of they tend to have more mood problems early on. They tend to have more visual spatial uh, types of problems uh, and they tend to be uh, slower in their mental processing and responses than somebody with Alzheimer's disease. And there are some medications uh, that we use for Alzheimer's disease and for Parkinson's disease dementia and some which have been approved for Lewy body dementia that can be helpful. Um, But unfortunately, their motor symptoms uh, tend to progress over a few years' time, unfortunately. The other thing about dementia with Lewy bodies is um, people who have dementia with Lewy bodies tend to have very vivid hallucination. It is possible to have hallucinations with Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease dementia. Um, However, the hallucinations uh, tend to be not that severe early on, especially in Alzheimer's disease. In Parkinson's disease dementia, a person might see um, something like 
um, you know, a bird buzzing around the living room or something like that. A person with dementia with Lewy bodies tends to have very vivid hallucinations. They might tend to see something like a rodeo in the living room. It's very severe um, and significant. And we, we do try to treat such hallucinations um, with behavioral and environmental measures because unfortunately the medications that are used, sometimes those can make um, their motor symptoms worse. So it's a, it's a delicate balance in terms of trying to treat the hallucinations. A rodeo in the living room. I don't know about you, but that could be a fun thing. I was looking for the cow sound effect. You're lucky I couldn't find it. Well, here's the thing about um, hallucinations in dementia is, as I said, some of the medications um, can have some significant side effects and uh, some can be quite profound. Um, Many medications that you might use to treat hallucinations might cause um, sedation or sleepiness or falls, particularly in older people. So, We tend to use very low doses of those medicines. If we have to use them at all, we try to avoid them. What usually works better is if we can identify any behavioral triggers. Is there anything that can cause hallucination? For example, sometimes um, patients with dementia might see whatever is on TV as really happening. So if there's a fire in town and that's on the news, they might see that fire as happening in the room where they're watching the television. And so uh, it might seem, you know, obvious or common sense um, to say maybe the TV shouldn't be on or they shouldn't watch the news, you know, maybe um, have a a musical or an old TV show that, you know, they enjoy or something like that. Um, So we do try to use behavioral or environmental measures. But the other thing is, to ask about these hallucinations is, is it bothering the number one, the patient? And is it bothering the caregiver? So as you said, you know, if somebody loves horses or loves rodeos, and that's what they see, and it doesn't bother them, then then you don't necessarily have to treat it. (laughs) She found one. (laughs) (laughs) I see that. We challenged her. We found one. <laughs> right. Okay. Jeez, I am looking at the time and we are probably going to need to pay those bills. They are going to want us to actually run an ad at some point. So we might as well take a break now. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Dr. Ann Lipton about dementia, Alzheimer's, and we might look into some of the other little aspects about treatment and possibly diagnosis. Everyone loves liberty. Our rights come from God, not the government. So why are you letting other people tell you what's best for your health care? Exercise your freedom with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a community of people who voluntarily share one another's medical costs. Liberty HealthShare is founded on the idea that most people truly want to help one another. Healthcare sharing allows members to do just that as a true community that supports one another in times of need. Liberty believes people should make decisions for themselves and their families. Members are able to take back the freedom to make their own decisions about their health care. Freedom from guilt or doubt about how your money is used. You have the freedom to direct your health care, not to be dictated to by bureaucrats. Stop letting others tell you what to do and join a community of like-minded people. Exercise your freedom. Join Liberty HealthShare and take back the control of your health care while helping those around you. Call Liberty at 855-58-LIBERTY. Again, that's 855-58-L-I-B-E-R-T-Y for more information or you can check them out at Liberty Health share.org again that's libertyhealthshare.org if you're 85 or younger would you like peace of mind and comfort for your family we're final expense direct with an urgent message for you the average funeral today costs over eight thousand dollars but the most you'll get from government benefits is 255 dollars how will your family pay the difference We can help. Our senior plans start as low as just a dollar a day and pay up to $30,000 for a funeral and other final expenses. Peace of mind is easy. There's no medical exam. You'll have lifetime coverage, and your plan can't be canceled as long as you pay your premiums. Call now for free information about our senior plans. Answer a few simple questions and receive approval right on the phone. Plus, call right now and we'll give you a discount prescription card for free. Call 800-553-8687. That's 800-553-8687. Again, 800-553-8687. 
Hey guys, we're back. And if you're just joining us, we've been talking about dementia and Alzheimer's with Dr. Ann Lipton. Thank you again for actually joining us and talking about this because there's a lot of people out there who just don't understand what dementia is and what Alzheimer's are and various different things. Thank you again for coming on to the show. All right. Well, thank you. I have a question. And thanks to all the caregivers out there, too, who are helping to take care of somebody with dementia. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, I have a couple of questions about treatments and, and diagnosis. Dementia is not something that's easily diagnosed, is it? That's correct. So what are the steps that you have to go through to diagnose something like dementia? What do you have to do? Well, that's a very good question. It's um, actually what we would call a clinical diagnosis. So what that means is there's no test that you can just send off and say whether someone has dementia or not. Um, Actually, most of the diagnosis is made through obtaining a history, usually from a family member. Uh, If the family member's not available, then someone who knows the patient well. Because for many dementias, an initial symptom is loss of insight, which is one of those executive functions I mentioned, your higher order function. So oftentimes a person with dementia is not aware uh, of their problems or the extent of the problems. So for example, somebody who has Alzheimer's disease, along with loss of memory early on, they may have loss of insight. So they don't recognize that they're forgetting or they don't recognize the extent of the forgetting, the memory loss. They don't think it's that bad. But when the the family member gives the history, they can actually point at some examples um, where it's quite significant, something that might put the patient at risk even in terms of their health or safety, in terms of, you know, completely forgetting to take their medications, you know, on a regular basis, um, something like that, forgetting how to get uh, to a familiar place or some uh, something along those lines. So um, there are several steps besides um, the history from the family member. We also want to make sure there's nothing else going on that could cause the dementia. Uh, so a brain scan is part of the guidelines for diagnosing dementia. So either a CAT scan, commuted, uh, computed tomography scan, or uh, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. Um, A more expensive test would be something like positron emission tomography or PET scan. Uh, But even a simple CAT scan or CT scan um, would go along with the guidelines. It just depends how specific uh, the diagnosis uh, uh, and the diagnostic uh, tool needs to be. But but any type of neuroimaging, at least some type of neuroimaging, uh, would meet the guidelines in terms of the diagnosis. Besides the neuroimaging, it's also important to test for any other diseases that might be causing the dementia. And these would be things like uh, thyroid function, uh, certain vitamins, uh, certain disease states, or electrolyte abnormalities. And With the history, we want to make sure we get a history of uh, the present illness. That's the current symptoms that are going on. But we also want to get a good past medical history. As I mentioned, vascular risk factors, things like high blood pressure, diabetes, all those may play into the diagnosis of dementia. And social history, for example, um, use of uh, alcohol, use of illicit drugs, smoking history, all of these may play a part. The other thing that's important about the social history is you want to get an idea of the person's education and occupation, because if a doctor or other healthcare professional is doing mental testing in the office, we want to have an idea of what to expect in terms of the patient's uh, baseline mental functioning and capacity. Uh, So it's very important to get a good history of all those things, as well as the medication history, because some medications can actually cause problems with memory, including over-the-counter medications. Um, Many people don't realize, but some over-the-counter medications that are used uh, to treat things like 
problems with sleeping. So some over-the-counter sleep aids, some over-the-counter allergy medication, and some over-the-counter um, medications for things like uh, acid reflux. Any of those may affect memory too, as well as prescription medications. Uh, so it's very, very important to get a detailed history, but then also to look at the neuroimaging and lab tests. And sometimes we also need to do more extensive mental testing that might be available in a doctor's office. So things like neuropsychological evaluation, um, besides neuropsychological evaluation, sometimes uh, speech language evaluation can be helpful as well. So it's, it's quite an extensive evaluation that needs to be done. And it's very often helpful to have a specialist to do the evaluation because it it, it is uh, extensive and comprehensive, and especially early on, or if a person has unusual factors such as a younger age, an age under 65, uh, it, it may not be as, uh, as straightforward a diagnosis as, say, making a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in someone who's in their late 70s and has the classic presentation. I, so some of those, I was just, my brain just went with some of those other cognitive um, tests. We're not talking those blot tests, are we? We're talking, you know, the ones where you look at an image and going, oh, I see a bat. You know, we're not talking those sorts of tests, are we? We're talking something a little bit more. Yeah, so that's the Rorschach inkblot test. And that's a very subjective type of test. What a neuropsychologist actually does is looks at objective testing. And this includes, and the other tests are similar as well, to IQ or intelligent quotient tests. And a neuropsychologist would definitely get uh, the level of a person's education and information about their occupation, um, because this would help the neuropsychologist anticipate the scores and also compare the scores to other people of the same age and of the same educational attainment. Uh, so yes, so these the neuropsychologist is going to be doing much more objective, standardized tests, looking at things like language, memory, visual spatial skills, uh, executive uh, functioning, things like. Uh, mental set shifting, um, going from letters to numbers and back, that sort of thing. Uh, and so all of these different aspects uh, would be looked at by a neuropsychologist. And it's a much more comprehensive type of testing than a doctor is typically able to do in the office. A doctor may do neuropsychological testing on a limited basis, but uh, the testing with a neuropsychologist usually takes a half to a full day. So whereas most doctors would not have the um, the time and the ability to do testing that's quite as extensive as that. No, they get what fifteen minutes for your normal GP. <laughs> right, that's why that's why I mentioned the idea of going to a specialist, especially if it's a um, the symptoms are a little more unusual or in a younger person, because it may not be something like Alzheimer's that may present in somebody who's in their 70s. Memory is the first and worst problem, you know, gradually getting worse over time. If someone is, you know, um, uh, younger yeah. than age 65, say they're working and, you know, has some very unusual problems that's, that are happening um, when, you know, they're normally a, you know, working person, uh, then that may warrant something like a neuro neuropsychological examination. All right, I'm going to come back to something that you were talking about very briefly. We're talking about the CT scans. I actually have a bit of a background in medical imaging myself, working in, working with CT scanning and that sort of thing. And I know that when you take a brain scan and you're doing a CT scan, looking at soft tissue is actually pretty hard. It's, it's not a nice, simple process. So what is it you would actually be looking for if you're looking at that imaging? Because you, you can't say, oh, I, we can see dementia. I mean, that, no, you can't do that. But what is it you're actually looking for in those images? That's a great point because you're exactly right. You can't really see dementia on a brain scan. What we're actually doing is trying to rule out and evaluate for other things that may be going on in the brain or to look for findings that are consistent with what we would expect to see if someone did have dementia. So we're actually looking for something in particular, say like a brain tumor, could that be causing the memory or if someone has language problems, other things, could that 
um, be something that's happening in the brain. So we definitely want to make sure that we evaluate for tumor. And that's why uh, a major reason why brain scans are, are part of the guidelines uh, for diagnosing dementia. We also want to look for any shrinkage of the brain and particularly early on. Uh, if we can see shrinkage in certain areas, that may help point us to a specific dementia diagnosis. Again, dementia is an umbrella term. We want to make a specific diagnosis as we can. The um, atrophy or shrinkage of the brain in dementia, as the dementia progresses, whatever type it is, uh, generally uh, goes on to progress, um, you know, encompass more and more of the brain and eventually the um, can be the entire brain. So the more the dementia has progressed, um, the less we're able to distinguish. So it's very good to get a, a scan early on, and that can be more helpful in guiding us to the type of dementia. And that's one reason why it's important for people to seek medical attention earlier rather than later. Uh, the other thing that we're Doc, looking for... Dr. Lipton? Yes, sure. Uh, sorry, not you today, Judy. <laughs> yeah, carry on. Anyway, would... <laughs> Someone who is up there in their years, maybe want to get a, and hasn't had any symptoms, maybe want to get a baseline done, you know, 65, 70, they don't have any of the major symptoms, but they just want a baseline because, for example, it runs in their family? Well, generally speaking, we don't get a baseline because why do the test unless it's going to make a difference in how you manage the symptoms, right? So the symptoms are more important than the test. If somebody felt like they were having memory problems, it actually would probably be better to do something like the neuropsychological evaluation because that actually tells us more about the function of the brain and could identify particular um, problems that they might be having and in what cognitive domains they were having those problems, whether it was memory or attention, uh, language, what have you. So, um, for example, if we look at things like um, uh, brain MRIs, people may have shrinkage or atrophy of the brain. But if they're not having problems in real life, we won't necessarily treat them. And the other thing is, you know, the medications that we have right now to treat dementia are not uh, preventative, and they really only treat the symptoms. They don't modify the disease course. So if you don't have symptoms and you got a brain scan and there was something um, like shrinkage of the brain, what would you do about that? You you don't have symptoms to use medications. Um, I'm not sure how it how it would help you in um, in terms of your present or your future. So I would I would not say that someone who doesn't have symptoms should get a brain scan. I think there should be a reason to have the brain, brain scan. What is the question you're asking? How can it help the patient? And I, I don't think a brain scan will help someone who's not having uh, a symptom. And in terms of planning, if you do have um, a history of dementia in the family, I think that's worth talking doctor. And if there are any factors in your own life that you might be able to modify uh, and also, if you look at something like Alzheimer's, most common form of dementia, uh, there are different things that you can do to help modify your risk, such as exercise. And uh, right now, we don't have medications uh, that are clinically available, but you might be able to volunteer for a study and through the study, do some research that might help um, yourself and maybe others in terms of getting a brain scan. So something like volunteering for a research study, that might be a more fruitful endeavor. Okay. So what about some of the other treatment? Okay. Well, it depends on the type of dementia. So that's why you want to get a specific diagnosis. And you were asking me before about the neuroimaging. So the other thing that we look for on neuroimaging is whether there's any vascular involvement, if there's any um, anything like a stroke in the brain that might have caused the problems or small vessel uh, disease in the brain. Uh, so we try to see if there's any element of vascular dementia. So depending on the type of dementia, it's pretty much like other things in medicine. Uh, we want to know what we're dealing with um, before we treat it so we can treat it as specifically as possible. So with Alzheimer's disease, um, there are a couple different classes of medication. As I mentioned, these are mainly modifying the symptoms um, 
and unfortunately still the diseases will progress. Um, but there's a class of medication that are called cholinesterase inhibitors. And in Alzheimer's disease, uh, there's low levels of a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And part of this is because some of the brain cells that produce this chemical are damaged or die. And so cholinesterase inhibitors, uh, essentially in a nutshell, work to maintain levels of acetylcholine, this important brain chemical for memory, or even um, increase slightly uh, the levels of uh, the brain chemical, and at least keeps the brain chemical of acetylcholine around more than if one didn't take these medications. And then there's another class of medications called NMDA antagonists, and these also uh, help with um, a neurotransmitter or brain chemical in the brain that um, helps in terms of dementia. And, and um, both of these medications are used in different types of dementia as well, such as um, Parkinson's disease, dementia, or dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, but for most other types of dementia, if they're used, they would be used what's called off-label, uh, where they're not necessarily approved for the dementia, but they may work in some individual cases. And then there's some other medications. For example, if someone has mood or behavioral symptoms, uh, they might be treated with uh, medications uh, that are labeled for use um, for depression or anxiety, uh, depending on what the symptoms are. The, the, the doctor can choose uh, different medications that might address these particular moods or behaviors. Uh, and there's a whole variety of different psychiatric medications that may be helpful in, in treating some of the symptoms, whether it's insomnia, problems with sleep, um, an alteration in sleep-wake cycle is very common in dementia. So we try to treat that with environmental factors uh, or environmental interventions, things like daily routines and structure and making sure a person is active during the day so they sleep better at night. Uh, but sometimes also um, we look into using medications that may be helpful for a person. So there is actually so much information out there about dementia and Alzheimer's. And you have even written a book about this. Why don't you tell us about your book? Um, so my uh, latest book is The Common Sense Guide to Dementia for Clinicians and Caregivers. And this is meant um, for people who are not specialists in the field. So actually both for doctors um, and all types of healthcare professionals, but also for families. And it's written in a way that deals with dementia in a pragmatic sense. So how to make the most of your doctor's visits, legal financial issues, um, how to deal with different uh, behavioral issues that may come up. Um, but we do this in a very practical way that's accessible by a layperson or by a clinician or other healthcare professional who's not a specialist. This book is the practical aspects, the behavioral, the environmental, uh, the therapeutic medical options, as well as uh, legal and financial management. Because sometimes people are scared to get a diagnosis or families are scared to take a loved one uh, for a diagnosis. But actually, as I mentioned, it's very important to know with what you're dealing with uh, because this can often do a couple things. One, there can be a lot of anxiety uh, in terms of uncertainty. So having a certain specific diagnosis can be reassuring for everyone in terms of knowing what a patient and family are dealing with and the doctors as well. And the other thing is for planning purposes is it's a gift to have a diagnosis of dementia early on because the dementia is going to progress no matter what you do. Um, but if you make a diagnosis early on, a patient may be in a situation where they can help plan and make decisions about their future, be that medical decisions, financial decisions, and so on. And a person can designate a medical power of attorney. They can make legal and financial planning arrangements. They can designate a legal power of attorney. So it's actually quite helpful uh, to have some planning and some information. And my book, The Common Sense Guide, to dementia, I co-wrote it with an author, and she is a geriatric psychiatrist. So we bring a unique perspective, both 
the perspective of a neurologist and of a geriatric psychiatrist. So you get both the neurology and the psychiatry and uh, the different approaches. So you get two two heads uh, for one in the, in this book. That's Dr. fantastic. Lipton, I do have a question. Yeah. How do you get that older person, I'm just going to say parent for lack of a term here, because in many cases that's what you're dealing with is your parents. How do you get them to go to the doctor to get that diagnosis without starting World War Three? Yeah, well, that is actually a common problem. So sometimes it's helpful uh, not to confront the person with dementia directly. So there's a saying, you never win an argument with an Alzheimer's patient. And I would say that probably goes for many patients with dementia. So don't make it an argument. Uh, make it a choice of two good options. Uh, as I said, I, it's often helpful to go to a dementia specialist, but if a family member has a doctor they know and love and they respect that doctor's opinion, certainly bring it to that doctor. The only thing is uh, sometimes it can be, as you brought up the example of a child, whether it's a child or a grown child or a spouse, it can be very difficult some of the discussion, uh, some of the things that need to be be brought up uh, can be embarrassing or uncomfortable for the family member as well as the patient. Uh, so one thing that we suggest in the book, and I think is a very helpful tip, is you can give the doctor the information. Sometimes doctors can't talk to a family member because a patient hasn't yet given permission or something like that. But you can give information to a doctor and they can have that information. Uh, so we suggest making a one page of the most uh, important pressing problems, uh, your, your highest level of concern. I would not make it more than one page because that is almost too much information, too much abs to absorb, but say the top two or three episodes or issues. So what I'm talking about in general terms here, let me give some specific examples. It may be very hard to talk in front of a spouse or family member to a doctor that the person has gotten lost going to the barbershop or beauty salon that they've driven to 20 years. That might be embarrassing or difficult to talk about. So driving is one. Finances are another. Um, that the parent or spouse was an accountant and now they can't balance their own checkbook. Um, that the person is having hallucinations or delusions. So hallucinations are abnormal sensory experiences and delusions are false beliefs. Uh, it might be very, very difficult to talk um, in front of a person who is having those experiences to the doctor. But what you can do is bring uh, a typed note to the doctor so they will have all that information. And again, the top two or three most pressing concerns. And I would say... If someone is driving and getting lost, that's a direct risk to their health and safety. And so that would be one of my most pressing concerns if I didn't feel they were safe to drive. Now, often early on, they may not have something that significant, but whatever the most significant problem is that the family member is concerned about or that seems to be affecting the patient the most. Uh, so that's just a handy tip that you can do. The other thing is um, people go to the doctor for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so sometimes um, uh, it may be difficult to get them to go in because of the memory problem, but they might go to the doctor for another reason. So that can be a helpful way for a person uh, to get in to see a doctor. But if you give the doctor the information, the doctor can then have that information and they can help you with your fem family member and, and doing what's in their best interest. That sounds like fantastic advice. Good. I hope, it help, I hope it helps your listeners and, and the two of you if needed, yeah. but I definitely hope <laughs> it helps anyone who's listening. Yeah. Okay. We're going to just temporarily, well, not temporarily because we're coming to the end of the show. We are going to change gears for a little bit. You and I are part of a book that got, it was announced last week. And I'm talking about, it's a book from Writer's Digest called Putting the Science in Fiction. It was so awesome when I saw that book reveal, the, the cover reveal come out. What were your thoughts about it? Oh, I'm very excited about this book. I think it's um, a landmark book in terms of the breadth uh, and depth of science uh, that it brings to the lay reader. 
it certainly can find an audience in people who write science fiction and fantasy because it's all about adding authenticity. I'm sorry, let me try that again. It's all about adding authenticity to fiction in terms of scientific concepts, whether that's wildlife biology, neurology, astronomy. And I think it's just a fantastic wealth of information. I think it would appeal to anybody who likes books uh, like The Physics of Star Trek. uh, I think it's going to appeal to everyone, actually. If you, and it's not just science fiction. I mean, I've, you, uh, you've, been in the same boat as me we've seen the table of contents of this book there are so many different chapters there i mean you've got a couple there about dementia and about um working with the neurology sort of side of things i know i've got ones about long distance imaging and and holograms there was some that were there about the real you know not the csi type labs but the real labs and actually how they work there are so many different different chapters there and, and it was such a wide topic. I think it's going to appeal to everyone who just likes watching, you know, television and just see where fiction is just wrong. It's just not right. It, it <laughs> and, certainly so, yeah. will give every reader a perspective on uh what's real and what's not. And uh you certainly I think every reader will come away a more critical uh, viewer and reader uh, and consumer of um, all t- all types of entertainment, but it really is. It's a book that makes you think, uh, it's, you know, about what what can really work and and what you know. Oftentimes in the media, disobeys the laws of physics or how the brain really works or how the universe really works. So I, I think it's, it's a very the laws of physics, Captain. <laughs> 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 I think it's a very yeah, exciting book. Just... I'm very excited, and I, I'm excited um, to uh, be involved with it, but also to hear readers' reactions and and to hear how it will influence uh, how people perceive media and how people create media. And and I'd love to see it, um, you know, help people who are writing about memory and dementia or writing about space travel uh, to add authenticity uh, to whatever they're creating, whether it's a graphic novel or a movie or a book. Yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on that book. I really, stuff the chapters I wrote. I want everybody else's chapters. I want to read the rest of it. I just want to Can't get wait. hold of that book. Okay. If only we could speed up time. Yeah. If only. If only. Hey, you know, maybe. All right. If anybody's got any questions about dementia or about Alzheimer's or about any of the things that we talked about today, how can they get hold of you to ask their questions? Uh, well, I, um, I'm on Twitter. So I'm at Ann Lipton. It's capital A, capital L, uh, at Ann Lipton. And um, certainly can entertain questions there. Uh, and perhaps they could, if they could send questions to you, um, I think that you could um, get them to me and I'd be happy to ask or I'd be happy to answer any of your listeners' questions. I think we can definitely do that. Can't we, Jess? We can do that. Of course we can, Doc. Okay, so you've got a book out. You've got the book coming out later this year. What is the next step for you? Well, I am also interested in putting science in my fiction, too. So I'm working on several novels, and I have a few picture books uh, that I've written and also some in the works. So um, I guess uh, stay tuned, and uh, I hope to be able to... uh, uh, come back and and uh, talk to you and or Jesse uh, about my future works. But I continue to write um, fiction and uh, nonfiction um, in a variety of genres. Awesome. That's fantastic. Right. Jess, do you have any questions for our guest before we uh, end the show? <laughs> I'm a memory doctor. So I have a mnemonic for my name. It's Anne with an E and Lipton like the T. I hope you'll remember me. Oh, that's oh, that is awesome! I love it. <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you very much for coming on today. It was oh, definitely enlightening, getting a lot of information. Thank you. It was my pleasure. <laughs> okay, Jess, I think you know what's coming. 
I think we're at the end. Yep. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Conversations in Science. If that wasn't enough of a science jolt for you, well, you can catch old episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, and a whole range of other popular podcast locations. In the meantime, if you have a question about science and just want to know a little bit more, feel free to contact us at the station, and that's at science at klrnradio.com. Alternatively, you can contact me on Twitter, and that's at Judy L. Moore, or you can find me on Facebook, and that's Judy L. Moore, or you can drop me a line through my personal website, which is judylmore.com. I think you can see the pattern here. Meanwhile, my cohort over here... For anyone wanting to track me down, they can follow me on Twitter at Radio Host Jesse, or they can email me at the station at jesse at klrnradio.com. And they can always check out the books and authors I talk to at jessiescoffeeshop.com. Bye! Bye, guys!